I'm Martin Reeves, chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, which is BCG's think tank for new ideas and strategy and management. And this is the Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new ideas and books with their authors and thought leaders. So I'm very pleased today to be joined by Paul Pullman and Andrew Winston. Paul needs no introduction. He was CEO of Unilever between 2009-2018 and currently serves as the chair of the Imagine Foundation, which promotes the adoption of the UN SDGs in business. At Unilever, he made a name for himself with bold and unconventional moves to prioritize long-term thinking and the company's environmental and societal impact. Andrew is an expert on sustainable business and an established author, multiple best-selling author. And together, they've just written and published a book called Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. So we've heard a lot about net zero this week at COP26. What is net positive? Is it just going a little bit further or is it a, a broader idea than net zero? Well, I think we hope it's a broader idea. At core, a net positive business thrives and profits by serving the world, by improving the well-being of everybody that they touch. You know, net zero, carbon neutral or carbon negative, you know, those terms are often about getting to zero, which is probably not as exciting as a goal, you know, as you'd like in business. And, and they're really focused on carbon, right? And so we're taking a much broader view of the way every company touches the world and asking a fundamental question, you know, is the world better off because your company is in it? And is it in the sense of better off net across many categories, you know, carbon and other things, or is it the idea of leaving the world better off in all categories of activity? Well, I mean, Paul can jump in too. I think, you know, ideally it's across all categories. You don't want to say, well, we're doing well on carbon so we can ignore, you know, living wages. The, you know, more specific definition we talk about in the book is really at all scales that you're improving the well-being of all your major stakeholders, employees, consumers, customers, suppliers, communities, and, and on. And you're doing that at all scales, right? Every product and service, every factory, every country you operate in, this is the North Star. I mean, this is not achieved yet by any company. We're not claiming Unilever is there, but a lot of companies have done pieces of this, right? There's places or product categories where they are having fundamentally a positive impact on everyone that they, that they touch. But we're really at the, at the beginning in many ways of thinking about business in this broader, more fundamental way than what we've done for 50 years, which is focused mainly on shareholder value in the short run. This is a broader view of value creation. At least on carbon, it seems we have a long way to go. So, you know, in spite of all the sincere efforts and the resolutions and targets, as far as I can tell, that CO2 emissions line and also the average global temperature line are just almost undeflected. They, they continue to rise at the same rate. In broad terms, what's missing from the picture? Because we have government action, we have company targets, and yet we're not really deflecting that line. Is there a missing ingredient or is it just a case of trying harder? Well, the first thing is the book doesn't spend much time anymore on why we should be doing this. I think that is very well established now by the majority of people. But many of the CEOs, many of people in business are struggling with the how. And this book is very much about the leadership transformation because it really starts with yourself, your own consciousness, your own awareness, and what is needed there to drive yourself to a higher purpose if you want to. You cannot have a purposeful driven company if you're not purposeful yourself. You cannot have a sustainable company if you're not sustainable itself. And the book very simply talks about this leadership transformation that is needed to drive your company transformation. 
first your own, what is under your control, but then increasingly in the value chain with your partners going beyond scope one and two, if you want to. And many people struggle with that. But then the reality is many CEOs are saying, that's fine, I'll try to do this. But many things are under government control. I have the incentive systems might be misaligned or the frameworks don't help me to get there. Or if I do something and my competitor doesn't, I might be at a competitive disadvantage. So the book talks about going beyond that and having a contract or partnership with civil society, with governments and the business community to drive the broader system changes. And one important aspect of the book is that you take responsibility of your total handprint in society, not just your footprint, which means all consequences from your business being there intended or not. Many companies think that they can outsource their value chain and also outsource their responsibility. That doesn't work anymore, according to us. And so it requires this broader concept. It also requires, if you want to be successful long term, to optimize the return on all stakeholders and run it for the benefit of all stakeholders. And we've seen during COVID that companies that have done that better than others have actually also been better rewarded for that. And finally, the book talks about the need to be consistent in everything we do. We call it elephants in the room, and it gets to your question, Martin. What about tax? What about corruption? What about CEO salaries? What about trade associations doing one thing that is contrary to what you stand for? What about money and politics? These are the tougher things that businesses have to deal with. And it is in that consistent implementation of all these challenges that you're creating a net positive company. Thank you for that, Paul. You've both been involved in, I guess, many different types of effort on, on sustainability and social responsibility issues. And there are a number of frameworks out there, some of which you've helped to uh, develop. We've got uh, setting and tracking ESG goals. We've got SDGs. We have the whole construct of, of purpose. We have frameworks for CSR and CR. What does the net positivity framework or your book aim to bring to that set of tools or approaches? I was just going to say quickly that I think all those tools are important components of a larger mission, a larger approach, right? To say, are we improving the world through everything we do? So that you need a lot of those components, right? You need to have ESG goals in place that cover the, the broad range of environmental and social dimensions. You need a purpose. And we start in the book really with, as Paul mentioned, starting with yourself as an individual, as a leader, moving into from your purpose into corporate purpose into setting really big goals that are based on the world's thresholds. So you need those tools. You need the information about where are we on climate, on inequality, on biodiversity. So you can start to build the knowledge base internally and head towards the kind of partnerships that we need. I think all of these tools are critical. Many are in development, right? There's a lot of things that aren't fully defined yet in the ESG world because it's, it's relatively new in some way, but we're trying to put a framework kind of over the whole thing and say, in the end, are you heading in the right direction? And does your existence improve all the people that you, you touch? And for a multinational, that's arguably all of us, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's the whole world, which is why you see Paul and other executive leaders, CEOs of the world at COP. That didn't happen before, say, Paris six years ago, seven years ago. And so this is business's approach to helping solve the world's problems because business has to be part of the solution. So I wanted yeah. to ask you about a technical issue of measurement, because in the book title, you, you have that it's about give and take and, and leaving a net positive balance. And I wonder how we can net gives and takes off against each other, because let's take AI, for example. You know, AI may have tremendous impacts on you know, problem solving, but on the other hand, it has externalities like 
issues of privacy and reinforcing biases and so on. I'm wondering, how do you net those two things off against each other in practice so that you can know that you're net positive? So the first step in practice is to be very well aware of the negative consequences of your business model, intended or not. And sometimes it might be a surprise. But for example, if you're in the food system and you are selling products in that industry, so to speak, then you you are also directly or indirectly responsible for deforestation, for poor livelihoods, for smallholder farmers, for stunting, for food waste. On the other side of that equation, the enormous issues of obesity or overweightness. So what this book says is we first increase your consciousness, your awareness of these issues, of these impacts, and then try to move your business model increasingly with a faster intensity to a net positive model. So you take the food system, where the food system currently with nature loss and and degradation of uh, land and environmental standards is causing 30% of the climate change, but it's also 30% of the solution. So smart companies are saying, how can I move to a carbon positive food chain? How can I move to regenerative agriculture? How can I do that whilst protecting biodiversity or restoring biodiversity? It's an enormous opportunity. First of all, we wouldn't get to the one and a half degrees that you talked about if we don't have nature-based solutions in there. Secondly, in our current systems, we're incurring 10 to $12 trillion of negative externalities because of a broken system. But companies that understand that that move to this nature-positive economy, if you want to, see increasingly the opportunities to drive their business and to create the more resilient and, and better-paying jobs. And this is really the transition that we need in our global economy, and this cannot happen without the business community. We are at the point now that the cost of not acting is significantly higher than the cost of acting, so it makes it attractive. We're at the point now that we're actually getting to negative feedback loops in our systems. The businesses are internalizing enormous costs for climate change. And it's not surprising here in Glasgow, where I am making the talks, that there is actually a tipping point that uh, we are now have $130 trillion of money under management, making commitments to be net zero. That's half the world's money. We have 90% of the countries now, including India and China, making commitments to net zero. So we are not spending in the book much time on the why anymore. We're spending time on the how because that's where the struggle is. And what we find is that companies increasingly are making their own commitments in this respect and trying to work together in the broader coalitions to handle these tougher challenges that we have. And that is where this book focuses on. And I think the companies that are increasingly doing that are the companies that are better placed for the future. Mm -hmm. There's one thing that is already happening in the financial markets, which is very interesting, which is that if you look at the different companies within a sector, we already are starting to see a pattern where the companies within a sector that actively try to reduce or turn around these negative externalities are also being higher valued by the financial market. So whilst you might call some of these things you know, non-material yet for disclosure purposes, the financial market is smart enough already to start to factor that in. And increasingly, that will be visible. We have the SEC working it in the US. We have the European taxonomy coming in. We've just launched yesterday here in Glasgow the Sustainable Standard Board. So there is a framework increasingly being developed to obviously raise the standards and make it compulsory for everybody so that we don't have the free riders. And businesses want this. They get the pressure from the financial market. They get the pressure from consumers or citizens. They get the pressure from their own employees. And if that isn't enough, 
their children are talking about it when they go home and they see that, you know, they have to be an active part of it. And we are saying it's better to make the dust than eat the dust. And what we find out is that companies like Orsted or companies like Tesla and many others in their different industries that are taking the initiative on this journey undoubtedly have some challenges along the way, but they get really more rewarded for this for a simple reason is that they position themselves well for the future. And that's why the financial market is increasingly interested in those companies. Let me ask you another how-to question then. It's about the collective versus the individual responses. So your, your book, in as far as I read it, it deals with the individual company and the individual leader. And of course, that's, that's necessary. But for instance, climate change is a collective action problem. It's quite possible that I could meet my targets in ways that make your job more difficult. For example, if I start making cars out of aluminium, they may consume less fuel, but somewhere in another part of the value net, somebody has more intensive use of energy to, to produce that aluminium. So how can you get a collective systemic solutions that, that make sense? Where does that coordination come from? Well, you're getting at something critical, right? Which is that these are systems problems and they're too big for any one organization or company to handle. There's no company big enough. And we have in the book, one of the key examples is about the management of palm oil, which leads to deforestation. And you could say, well, and the NGOs have pushed for a long time on the big companies like Unilever and say, you got to do something. That's fair, but Unilever is the world's largest buyer of palm oil and only buys 3%. So there's, there's a scale, no matter how big you are, Walmart's not big enough to solve some of these problems. No one government is. So you're getting at a problem of, of systemic connections. And the example you use of, well, if you build something with more aluminum, well, then the aluminum industry also has to be getting together and figuring out how to decarbonize. Because basically covering all of this is just thresholds, right? There's this kind of biophysical threshold that is shaping everything. We can only produce so much more carbon, right? There's only so much clean air and water. And then there's kind of a human and moral minimum threshold of sufficiency of wanting eight, nine billion people to have enough to live a thriving life. And that applies to everybody in the system, but it's going to go a lot better if you've got all the system in the room. And I think the book really builds towards that argument and really in the heart of it is about how do you have a systemic partnership where you have business, the value chain, competitors or peers, civil society, government, all together working on a problem. And that's the only time it really gets to the scale of solution that we're talking about. And it and it's, hasn't happened enough, but we're starting to see that happen in entire sectors are on entire problems like, say, palm oil. You have to get everyone in the room. Yes. Uh, I think business is starting to understand, Martin, that there are bigger issues that should become pre-competitive, especially when they are the issues that deal with the future of humanity. In climate change or plastics in the oceans or deforestation, I've always said if Unilever does all these things perfectly and scoops up all the prices, but nobody else does it, we're still toast. And this is obviously what is increasingly understood. I think that's one of the reasons why you see the business community so broadly represented here in Glasgow with industry-wide initiatives to solve these challenges. But then they discover they need governments as well to change frameworks. We still have five, 600 billion of perforce subsidies in, in climate where fossil fuel companies are being subsidized, or we have these perforce subsidies in food where it drives you into the wrong behavior. So we need to work with all of us. And governments also struggle to do it alone, to be honest. So it takes courage. That's the first word that is important. And that's why we use courageous companies. It takes courage to set targets that you know are needed versus targets that you know you can achieve. It takes courage to work with others when you're not alone in charge. It takes courage to tackle these broader societal issues 
that might actually have effects for the next generations, but not immediately to your benefit. And that requires trust, that requires transparency, accountability, working hard on getting shared objectives. And companies that are willing to be part of those alliances that go beyond their own interest, I think increasingly are the companies not only in these leading positions, but are being seen by society as the companies that they should support. And that's why this bifurcation is happening in industry. It doesn't make any sense anymore to deny what is going on because you're actually putting your companies on the path to the graveyard of the dinosaurs. And what we are trying to create with this book is this movement where companies create that critical mass, which is what we're needing now, to move at scale and speed. On climate change, I respectfully would correct one thing, that we actually see the private sector now moving well ahead of governments in terms of their ambitions, because they get the costs already now in their business models. They get the pressures, as I said. And increasingly, we see them giving more courage to the governments to set higher targets. And this is exactly the scenario that is playing out right now in Glasgow, but it needs this stronger partnership to truly get there. These are major, major changes that go well beyond we've ever done in the history of mankind, well beyond the Industrial Revolution, to totally decarbonize the way we are growing our economies, completely redesign our food system. And that is probably true for any sector. Not easy, but that's why this book, Net Positive, how courageous companies thrive by giving more than they take, can make a major contribution to help us get there. Let me just add one quick nuance, Martin, that you know, I've worked on strategy in and outside of companies for 30 years, back to my first job at BSG, at BCG that we were talking about earlier. And there was a big aha for me in, in working with Paul on this, which was, it sounds like when you say everything's pre-competitive, that you're giving up on competitive advantage, right? And we all got steeped in competitive advantage in business school and at our consulting firms. But there's an element, you know, as Paul and I talked about this, that I, and I really listened to him kind of think about his 10 years at Unilever, which was, if you're solving these joint problems together and you come to some conclusions, yes, you can maybe bring down the costs of new technologies, of low carbon technologies, but that some companies are still within that group going to be better positioned to take advantage of it. The ones who we believe are better positioned to be net positive, that have a clear purpose, their people are aligned, they have the trust and transparency of their stakeholders. When you solve some of these joint problems, they will still move faster. They will still have a competitive advantage. That was a big aha for me. And I think you see that. You saw it during the pandemic. Some companies just moved quicker. They had the trust of governments and stakeholders and their employees to move faster. Let me touch briefly on technology. It seems like the digital technology industry is having its moment of truth, where it's gone from having a sort of utopian image to now we have a lot of awareness of the uh, side effects of, of technology. I guess I have two questions. Is digital technology part of the solution, part of the net positive solution here? Can it help? And also in terms of the technology industry addressing its own externalities, is it just pretty much the same as any other industry from a net positive perspective or are there special considerations for, for the technology industry? Well, any industry is different, but uh, many things are in common. And what the book talks about is you have to take responsibility of your total handprint in society. So it is great to celebrate that you have a platform where people can come together, where you can reach other people in faraway places with education, where you can create a marketplace for small enterprises. We all understand that, and these are major contributions to the economy that should not be disregarded. But at the same time, if there is hate speech, if you get addiction of children, if the algorithms are manipulated in a way that undermines democracy, if that is done with awareness as it increasingly transpires, 
then there is a problem. There is a problem of not taking responsibility of your total handprint in society. It's not different from consulting companies actively advising companies on the opioid crisis to keep operating or to actively avoid tax. Or Indeed. You know, We have a broader responsibility that we have to talk about. And this is what society is looking for. And it will help restore business trust. It will help improve the chances of more equality and inclusion in society. It will tackle the real challenges for which we need to work together. And ultimately, we will all be better off. And in technology, precision technology, data monitoring on climate change is absolutely crucial. We wouldn't get there otherwise. Precision agriculture has revolutionized. We are now able to monitor across the whole world the methane and carbon emissions that we've never done before. And none of these plans can be implemented, Martin, without accountability, without transparency, without responsibility. And the data revolution is certainly has enabled us to not only measure the cost of not acting or the cost of failure, but it has also been able to put an incredible enabling and monitoring system in place. And you need all of that. So we couldn't do it without technology. We wouldn't have this high level of hope still that is there. But at the same time, once more, technology needs to take responsibility of all its consequences, which we now find out that when they're negative and people shout enough or enough advertisers start boycotting advertising on their platforms, then all of a sudden there are solutions. For every industry, like when I was running Unilever, it's better to do the obvious and do it earlier than the others, perhaps, but you have to do it. That's, uh, that's why we started with transparency on ingredients. We went out of microbeats before they became banned by law. We decarbonized our value chain before we had to pay a price on carbon. Don't wait with these things. Individually and collectively, we really need to move forward. And it makes now so much business sense. We're not asking anything different here. Unfortunately, our time is constrained. I'd like to go on on this very rich topic, but let me maybe pose a final question. It's, it's a two-part how-to question. So supposing a CEO is convinced by your argument and they want to get started on a very complex agenda, where would you start? What would be the first things that you would do? And, and then beyond that, of course, I think you're implying some sort of transformation trajectory or transformation agenda. You know, how does one conceptualize that multi-step transformation program? Why don't I start tactically, and Paul can and end with the more transformational, I think, inspirational view of this as someone who's done it at a large company. Look, there's no perfect start, right? This, is, this could feel messy and tough no matter where you are on the journey. This is a complicated process. But it does start, as we said before, I think, with the self. You have to start kind of finding your own aha and the, the humanity at the core. A number of people who have read, I mean, the book's just out, not many have fully read it yet, but a few have said they're surprised at the, the humaneness of it, that we're trying to bring humanity back to the discussion. But then I think there's a bunch of data and understanding that you need to have in place. And we have on the, the website, netpositive.world, a readiness assessment. It's a simple kind of 25-question document that says the first four or five are, do you have a sense of, say, the thresholds in the world? Do you understand climate inequality, biodiversity, how you impact them and how they impact you? Do you know your footprint up and down your value chain? Do you know what your stakeholders expect of you? Have you asked your employees what they want of you today and in the future? Like getting those basics together a lot of companies don't have that information kind of pulled together. And then that allows you to go find some of the low-hanging fruit, some easy wins, get some momentum going, engage your employees is one of the very first things to do. And that leads you to some of the harder conversations to make a deeper, kind of more transformational progress. You have to have those basics in place so you are ready to go and, you're, and your company's in kind of good working order and you know what you need to be working on. And then you can talk transformational partnerships. 
Paul? Yeah, I just wanted to end with one thing in there, which is, you know, Nelson Mandela said, it always seems impossible until it is done. We have a tendency to underestimate the speed at which technology moves. 60, 70%, according to BGG, of the carbon emission issues can be solved right now already with the technology available. If a value chain would work together, the end cost to the consumer would only go up by about 4% in terms of tackling these issues. We have come a long way in that sense, and that shits Kuzma's courage. But unfortunately, we also overestimate the time we have. This is an exponential problem, and it is not different from COVID in that respect. And the encouraging thing is that when COVID regretfully came to this world, many people thought, well, this is the end of ESG or sustainability. This is the end of governments focusing on that because they have a big health issue that they need to take care of. And here we are a year and a half later. We've actually seen an acceleration in ESG. We have seen an acceleration in the climate commitments. In the last year and a half, we probably have seen more progress, real progress and commitments than since Paris, which is quite an achievement. And people are starting to realize now that uh, these existential threats, that we only have a small window to tackle them. And that window is now. And frankly, there isn't any alternative. Running away from it is actually the most irresponsible position we can take towards the planet, towards the fellow stakeholders, and towards the future generations. So it is that level of consciousness that we talk about that needs to open our minds and change the way we do things. It is actually all within our means. That is probably the biggest bottleneck we have. And it needs politics and governance to change our consciousness. It needs markets and market economics. It needs civil society. It needs religion and spirituality. And all these things are coming together, I believe, to allow us to move forward in a way that we've never done and not to disappoint our future generations. When you're in a position of a CEO who is listening now, you're very fortunate to be put in a position to do something about it. And as we've seen with many of these issues, society now expects you to do that, expects you to speak up when basic values are being violated, democracy is being undermined expects you to actually act when we have these planetary boundary issues. And increasingly, even in the US or wherever the listeners might be, the CEOs are more trusted to actually drive these solutions than any of the other institutions, according to Edelman. So now we just have to live up to that challenge. And if we do that, we put our companies in so much better position now financially as well. If we don't do that, we actually risk endangering the future of the institutions that we have the honor to lead. So this is really a, a crucial moment for mankind in that respect. Well, congratulations on the book, gentlemen. Thank you for your inspiring message and thank you for spending time with me today. I've been speaking with Paul Pullman and Andrew Winston, who've just published Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. My reflection is that it's a great leadership guide to sustainability and you might even say a guide to the rehumanization of business so thank you again gentlemen thank you martin thank you. for the opportunity appreciate it